Well, I'm so glad to be with you this morning. My name is Adam Griffin. I'm the lead pastor here at Eastside Community Church. And it's an honor to bring uh, you a message from the Word of God. If you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible app on your phone or whatever you got with you, let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. And we're in the middle of a series where we're talking about some of the stories from the Bible that even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard of them before. And the one that we're walking through today is probably familiar to you, and if even as familiar as it might be, it's probably still confusing. And so I want to take a little bit of time today to point out what is so true, right, and good about this story that is very famous from Genesis chapter 22. We're calling uh, the message today, Isaac and the Ram, but one of the main characters is also Abraham, Abraham the father of Isaac. So let me read this to you, and a um, little story time here, and then we'll talk about it. Starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on his on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together, and when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I'll say this is the word of the Lord and you say thanks be to God. Ready? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there are probably a couple spots, even as I read, that you're like, hold on. Stop right there. Like, what? Why? Why? How? What, what is happening? And that's... 
That's one of the reasons we're doing this series is that if you just read this story, you might think, oh, the Bible must be, it's kind of like fables or it must be some kind of mythology or that, that sounds like a different God than the God we follow. Why would this happen? In fact, if you've grown up in a household that did not know the Lord or maybe you've explored atheism or agnosticism or maybe you've struggled with doubt, maybe this is the story that you've come back to and gone, what kind of God would ask a father to slaughter his son in order to prove that he loved him. And just because he didn't do it, is that a loving God? So that's our text for today. Really looking forward to unpacking it with you. It's bizarre, right? Even in the first verse, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Like, why? Why test him? And I always misunderstood this word. When I read that and it said God tested Abraham, I always read it as like, like scholastically, academically. He's going to give him a test and see if he passes. How does Abraham do at what God is asking him to do? But don't think of the word testing here so much as an exam. Think of it more like testing your limits. Like if you've ever worked out and lifted weights like I did once in high school, then you know you know like what it means to test your limits, to just lift until you can't lift anymore, to find out what is your max weight that you can lift. Or maybe you've exercised, maybe you're a runner and you've, you've tried to push the limit to go, how far can I sprint before I have to slow down, before your side starts to ache, like 10 yards, 15 yards? How far can you go before it starts to hurt? Or maybe if you are also more like me, maybe you've tested the limits at a, a buffet or at CC's where you've gone, how many, how many slices can I do before CC starts losing money? Like how much can I go for before they say, sir, that's enough. And you say, this is all you can eat, sir. Like what does it mean to test the limits? So this is what testing means. This is God looking at Abraham and saying, I see where people have these limits to what they're willing to put their faith in me. They're willing to love me. They say they fear me, but there's a limit. And God's testing Abraham. And when you push your limits, what happens? When you push your limits, exercising or eating or lifting or any of those things, what happens when you push your limits? Your limits move. When you test your limits, when you are a weightlifter and you test your limits, eventually your limits are different. And if you are a competitive eater, I'm sure the same is true. Uh, if you test your limits, your limits, it's God pushing on the limits, saying, Abraham, push your limits. Why? That your limits might be even further. He's testing Abraham's faith to strengthen Abraham's faith. But more than that, this story is recorded for you. Hebrews says that this is recorded that he might be a hero of the faith. That when you read the story of Abraham, you should be going, that's unbelievable. Who could trust God that much that there could be a sentence where it says, and God told him to offer his son as a burnt offering. And the next verse says, so Abraham got up early in the morning to go do it. That does not make sense. That's bizarre. That's ridiculous. Who has the kind of faith to say, if God said it, and even though I don't comprehend it, I'm going to still comply with it? Who has that kind of faith? That's why Abraham is considered a hero of the faith. And if we had time, we'd talk about Abrahamic religions. We'd talk about Ishmael and Isaac and Judaism and Islam and how from this point there's a divergence in the world. But all these Abrahamic religions, Judaism... 
Islam, Christianity, we all share this story. And while we interpret it different or even write it different or argue about it, we all point back to Abraham and say Abraham was a hero of the faith. What a faithful man. Now, for the Christian, we understand something really special going on here that we'll get into in a minute. But I'm going to give you four very clear, very brief points. One is that following God is costly. We'll talk about here in just a second. Two is that following God should mean obedience without delay. Three is that faith sometimes surpasses our understanding. And four is that you are beloved. You are beloved. So that's where we're going. First, following God is costly. Uh, When I was a younger, much singular man, I used to get asked often to come and help uh, move things. That's what guys do. Uh, That's what married couples do to their single guy friends. Hey, will you come and move some things? And I know ladies, similarly, you've probably been asked, like, hey, will you come over and babysit? That's what you get asked to do when you're single and you have married friends. And I, likewise, was that person. And just as an aside, man, can we be a church that doesn't just invite single people to do labor alongside married people with married people thinking about inviting some of your single friends, single friends over for dinner. Invite them into your life. And don't just give them pizza once they move the couch. Invite them over for like a nicer dinner, maybe like a nicer pizza, something like that. But let's be a church who invests in one another. But what I was kind of famous for in high school and college is when somebody would offer up furniture for free, I would accept it sight unseen. I would say, absolutely, I'll take it. And I'd figure it out later. And my friends were always like, you always say yes. And I'm like, yeah, it might be awesome. Let's go get it. And there was a time where a friend of mine at a church I used to work at, uh, an older gentleman, he said, hey, my family's thinking about getting a new couch. Would you be interested in taking the old one off our hands? And I said, absolutely, yes, no doubt. Absolutely, I'll get it. So I go over to his house, and I have a friend there to move the couch with me. And my friend has a truck, which another thing is talking about people with trucks and how we don't treat them very well. But sometimes the person with the truck... I mean, my friend Aubrey, used to, her voicemail used to say, and she was one of my female friends with a truck, her voicemail said, hello, this is Aubrey. No, you can't borrow my truck. Please leave a message. Because it was so insane. But my friend with a truck, who I needed, thank you, friend, we went to pick up this couch. And this couch was like, you look at it, it's nothing special. It's not leather. It's not even pleather. It's cloth. And it was a nice enough couch. And then they showed me some of the features. I saw that there was a, a cord coming off the back with a little plug on it. And I was like, what kind of couch has a plug on it? This is interesting. And uh, the middle part of the couch folded down. And there was like a nice faux wood fake table in the couch with cup holders. I was like, okay, this is nice. And there are little switches on it. And I was like, what are these little switches? And it's, they said, those are the massagers. And I said, oh, massagers. So I got in and each side reclined. I mean, this is not a normal couch. I'm like, man, I'm winning right here, okay? So I get in the couch and I switch the massager. The choices are off, low, or high. So, of course, I went high. You know, you got to see what this thing can do. And I went to high. And it's, uh, massage is probably the biggest lie in the furniture industry. It did not massage. If anything, it just kind of shakes you a little bit. And you're just kind of, oh, this is why I need the cup holder. It's going to be shaking me over here. But either way, I'm like, cool, I don't care. Free couch, right? I'm like, let's take it. Let's Let's pack it up. Let's put it in the couch. So we pick it up. It's heavy. It's recliners, and it's got whatever the massage apparatus is in there. You know, probably was rats for all I know. But anyway, we pick it up, and we start moving it. We're literally halfway out the door. And the gentleman who asked me to take it off his hands says, so we were thinking probably like $300. What do you think? And I was like, what? 
Like I'm, I'm moving it. I'm it's in my hands, and we're walking out as if I'm robbing him. We are stuck there now, halfway at the door, and he throws all of a sudden. We're thinking like 300 bucks. What do you think? Which to me, I'm like, well, now, yeah. What am I going to barter with you while I'm holding it already? I'm not going to fight you. We go to church together. I can't tell you how unfair this is, but I said, yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds fair. 300 bucks. So it went from like a free couch to an expensive free couch that I didn't need very, very quickly. And even though it had kind of like quirks to it, I'm like, I would not have gone to the store to pick out this couch. But now, now I own it. Now what am I going to do with it? it? Ended up being like a really great garage couch, you know, but paid him 300 bucks and walked out with it. And sometimes this is the way we think about our faith. People will say salvation in Christ is free, which is true. It is true. And then when we say as Christians, this is what it's going to cost you. People go, well, what? You said it's free. You said, I get to do whatever I want. That's what freedom means. Salvation is free, so I can live however I want. What, do you, what is this bait and switch? What is this trick where all of a sudden you're saying that this is going to cost me something? I thought we were talking about something free. The difference is Christ, who does offer you freedom freely, has never said that your freedom comes without a cost. First thing you need to know about the price of your freedom is that it did not cost God nothing. The freedom of your soul was not cheap. It was not easy. It cost Christ his life. And when we say that salvation is free to you, and oftentimes when we get something free, we treat it cheaply. You know what I'm saying? Like when I was a young life leader, sometimes I would work really hard to get a scholarship for a kid who I really wanted to go to young life camp. And these kids that I really wanted to hear the gospel, sometimes I would pay out of my own pocket to get them to camp. And then when you paid the whole way for them to go, you know what would frequently happen? That kid would not show up. You know why? Because it cost them nothing. So they're going, I just decided not to go. Well, it didn't cost me nothing. And I wanted something for you. Sometimes when you get something for free, you treat it very cheaply. And so while it costs Jesus his life and it gets to be free to you, sometimes we treat our faith cheaply. Like, I will follow God unless you make me give that up or unless you make me pursue this or unless I have to be that kind of person to make this kind of lifestyle choice, unless I have to do that. And so we treat our faith like it should be free and uh, we would call it like no strings attached, which means to us we get to do whatever we want. But freedom is not you become king. Freedom with you king is still enslavement to an evil king. Freedom is being set free to follow a good king. So while salvation is free, following Christ will cost you dearly. And it's what's better and it's what's right. So in the story of Abraham, we see a man to whom God is teaching the lesson Following God will cost you. And if you think about all of Abraham's life, he's had faith tests before. But the ones before that I don't, nobody asks me about these ones, where Abraham is so old he shouldn't be able to have kids anymore, and he's always wanted a kid, and there's a kid that's been promised, and then he and his wife do end up having a kid named Isaac. Nobody asks me about that one, because in that case, Abraham has to have faith that something too good to be true is going to happen. 
And for us, we have no problem imagining that God might do that. What if God did something too good to be true? Oh, that'd be awesome. But then you get a story like this and you go, well, this seems too, too cruel to be true. It seems too confusing to be true. This is the same God who does things that we don't understand sometimes, does things that are difficult to follow sometimes, but it's the same God who's asked what of Abraham? Faith. That God can be trusted even in the face of high cost and in the face of difficulty. Christ is king means forsaking all other loves in your life. Abraham loved Isaac. In fact, the whole story falls apart if he doesn't love Isaac. If this is a story of a father who didn't like his son, who's asked to sacrifice his son, you'd be like, well, well, yeah, it seems like they didn't like each other. But this isn't that story. This is a father who adores his son. A father whose son has been promised something pretty significant, and God says, we're going to sacrifice that son. It's the lesson for all of us that no matter how much you love somebody, the call of the gospel is that your first love, your foremost love, your priority love, your, your wholehearted love is God's. That nothing else, even family members, come between you and this primary love. And not only that, it costs you not only your loves, it costs you your fears. I have struggled my whole life, I've told you this before, struggle with the fear of man. I get so concerned with what other people think about me. But putting my faith in God means every other fear takes the back seat to my fear of God. There's nothing that mankind could ask me to do that God warned me against that I should forsake my God in order to pursue. The fear of God is my primary fear. The love of God is my primary love. Everything else is forfeit because of who my God is. And secondly, you see in Abraham obedience without delay. In my house as a parent, we talk about first-time obedience Maybe you parents use that language as well, first-time obedience. I don't say that to my sons. What I say to my sons is, how many times should dad have to ask you to do this? And the answer is always once. Technically, I'm asking them a second time when I usually ask them that question. So they could, technically, they're not in this service. They could say twice because that's usually the truth. But the, the question is always, how many times should dad have to ask you to do that? It's once. It's first-time obedience. Now, this is what God has asked of Abraham and what we see Abraham do. There's no complaint here. There's no argument. There's no demand for explanation. It says, God says, do this. It seems confusing. And early the next morning, Abraham gets up to do it. That's pretty admirable. That's astounding. In our life, we delay tons of things. If you think about all the things that you're supposed to do, but you don't feel like doing, so you don't do it right now. Like maybe in your house, there's the roommate who, or the spouse who doesn't do the dishes right away. And it's like, I will do them later. I just don't feel like doing them now. That, that's me. I'm that spouse. I was that roommate. And you know what? They'll get done, okay? Or maybe for you, it's like the, the oil change. You're like, how, how much further can I go once the oil change light is on? It's just that errand you don't want to run. Or maybe it's the laundry or the grocery shopping. Or maybe it's the shopping for something small. You're like, I just don't even want to do it. I don't even want to pull out the app and order it on Amazon. That's too much trouble. My thumb is so tired. It's been a long day. <laughs> you know, there's those things we, we should do, but we don't do because we don't feel like doing them. And it's just as true in the Christian life. There are a hundred things that we know we should do, but we don't do them or we delay doing them. 
There are, we present to you all the time as a church, hey, there's ways for us to be involved in ending sex trafficking in Dallas. Well, some of us don't feel like that's the thing right now. Or there's ways for us to mentor kids who don't have dads in Lake Highlands. Well, I don't feel like it right now. Or pursue young life kids or serve with refugee resources. And we present that and we go, that sounds really good. I will probably do that once I'm done with this in my life. And then when, when that season comes and goes, no one's asking anymore. And so we just delay and don't. Or how many times have we gone, it's been a long day, I'm not going to home group. It's been a long day, I'm not going to, uh, it's been a long month, I don't want to serve with kids at Eastside, I don't want to do that, I don't feel like it. The good things, good things the Lord has put in front of us, we go, I don't feel like doing it. This is us. More than anything though, I think the most obvious example is repentance and confession. How easy it is it? For us, when we've sinned, when we've erred, when we've made mistakes, when we've offended our God, to go, I see it personally, internally, I see it, and I know I should tell this other person about it. And this is typically for single men I work with, especially, but all men and all women. We want to kind of have some space from it before we tell somebody. So we can introduce it like this. Hey, a couple weeks ago, I was struggling with this. Hey, a couple months ago, I did this. As if the distance between it makes it seem like that's no longer a problem for me. When really the answer should be, hey, not only was this a struggle for me, but I should have told you already. So two things I need to repent of. We delay obedience, thinking it's actually protecting us, when really what it is is to our detriment. What we see in Abraham, a hero of the faith, is a man who goes, God asked me to do something. I don't even get it. I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to get up early in the morning. I'm going to make it happen. That's what I want to be as a man of God. I want my wife to see that in me. I want my kids to see that in me. A man who goes, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to get up early and do it. It's going to be tomorrow morning, first thing. Or it's going to be right now. And sometimes that creates a mess. And sometimes following God is messy. Sometimes being honest about our mistakes, we will avoid telling somebody because we'll be like, it'll hurt them really bad. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because you already did it. Let's be honest. It's our chance to not delay repentance, to not delay serving, to not delay pursuing the mission God had given us to be obedient to him and be obedient today. Not only that, I want us to be a people of God who are confessing our urges towards doing something. I want us to be preemptive saying, hey, I'm tempted towards buying this thing that I know I shouldn't be buying or putting this much debt on my credit card or pursuing these images on the internet or flirting with this person at work or I'm, I'm tempted towards this idea or that idea. I'm tempted towards not telling you about something I did today or thought today or, or uh, knowing that I was supposed to do this chore in our house and I didn't tell my roommates I didn't do it. I just found a way to hide it. Like that's our temptation all the time. But I want to be people who are confessing, this is the way I'm feeling right now, pray for me. This is the temptation of my heart, pray for me. I want us to have healthy marriages, healthy single relationships, healthy uh, roommate situations. I want us to be a church that is so confident in who we are, in our identity, in Christ, and so in love with him that sin is not attractive to us. I wouldn't want it. And where I find myself wanting it, I want to confess it and say, pray for me. And where I pursue it, where I fall in love with darkness, I want to be quick to confess and repent. And when the opportunity comes along for me to serve, 
I want to be quickly thinking, not whether or not I feel like it, but is there a way that I could do that? Is there a way that I could be part of that? Third, faith often surpasses understanding. If God is king, listen to me, if God is king, you don't need to comprehend in order to comply because he's trustworthy. You don't need to ask a thousand why would I's if you know God asked it of you. He can be trusted. If he's the king of your finances, if he's the king of your views on politics, if he's the king of your relationships or your sexual desires, if he's the king of what you want out of life, your plans, if, if he's the king of everything, your diagnosis, your attitude, your bank account, if he's king and he said it, I don't need to argue and I don't need to wonder I can delight in the fact that he can be trusted with it. Christians are called to live below their means. When I talk to some of my friends who do not follow the Lord about how they spend their money, I'll be honest, sometimes I get a little jealous and I think, man, that'd be awesome. If I got 100% of what I make for me, that'd be awesome. And that's a sin that needs to be put to death in me. That's coveting, that's greed. The Christian is called to understand that everything you have is not yours. Every dime of it, every stitch of clothing, every square foot of your home is his. And if he's the king of it, he's the king of your accounts, he's the king of what you do with them, then he gets to decide what to do. And I don't even need to understand in order to comply. And sometimes what the Lord asks of you is so clear and easy and understandable and wonderful. And sometimes it's hard. But at the end of the day, he's king of both, the mystery and the clarity. And then lastly, you are beloved. Oftentimes when we read this story, we read it from the perspective of Abraham, like I just did. And we talk about having faith and making difficult decisions and following God no matter what and not delaying in our obedience. But for just a second, I want to remind you about the character in the story for whom this must have been truly confusing. And that's Isaac. Isaac, who, who is asking questions, where's the sheep? That's got to be the best question ever. I'm carrying the wood. I see you got a knife. We forgot the animal. And then how confusing, once he starts to get bound by his father and put on the wood, Dad, you love me. And Abraham going, I do love you, son. I do love you, but God has asked something of me. Man, how confusing to be Isaac. But the reason it's so important for us to take a second to acknowledge what it must have felt like to be Isaac is that the person in this story, when you talk about the gospel parallels, the person in this story who we get to put ourselves in the place of is Isaac. Because we are the one who is beloved by our father, who deserves, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of our sin is death who deserves death because of our rebellion against our loving Father. But instead of our life being taken, similar to Isaac's story, someone is provided in our place. Isaac gets to get up and walk away. And a ram is provided instead. The good news of the gospel that we see throughout the whole Old Testament, but very prominently here, is of a Savior who put the, sac the wood of the sacrifice on his own back and carried it to the place where he would be sacrificed, even though he was innocent, so that you might go free, so that you might live. 
so that you might, and yes, I said free, you might live in freedom, but that it would cost you everything to follow him. That you'd be willing to surrender every love and every fear and every possession to be a Christian, someone who's a follower of Christ. And the reason God tells this story is to give us a picture of all humanity, that there's a father who loves you, who delights in you, who has promises for your life yet to be fulfilled. And though you have rebelled against him, though we are all treasonous and the price of that is our life, we will get to walk away from that moment because a lamb has been provided in our place and that lamb is Jesus Christ. And that we might trust him and be delighted in him. Understanding that while God is testing, is pushing the limits of Abraham's faith, that we might likewise get just a taste of that. I'll say one last thing. There's a story in uh, the New Testament where a man comes to Jesus Christ and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says to him, knowing that he's very wealthy, you have to go and sell everything you've got and come and follow me. And the man goes away very sad. In fact, uh, Daniel referred to the scripture at the beginning today. Like, how how can anybody be saved then? And Jesus says, well, what's impossible with you is possible with God. But you can juxtapose these two stories. You have a rich man who's unwilling to sell everything he has, maybe anything he has, to follow Jesus. He wants, like many of us, I want Jesus and to give up nothing. I want Jesus for free and to make no sacrifices. I want Jesus, salvation, insurance for the afterlife, but also I don't want it to cost me anything. I don't want it to cost my reputation. I don't want it to cost my relationships. I don't want it to cost my desires. I want to follow Jesus and give up nothing. And then you have Abraham, the man who has what's more precious to him than his promised son, nothing. And God says, you've got to give that up to follow me. And he says, I'll get up tomorrow. I'm on it. And these two stories juxtapose against each other, show us a little bit of a mirror into our life to say, where are we this morning? Are we the close-handed guy who goes, it doesn't matter what Jesus wants. I've got Jesus, but I'm not giving up anything else to follow him. Are we Abraham who's loosened his grip on everything God's given him going, I trust God with everything I've got it's his first anyway, including my own children. Say what God wants to do with it, his will be done. I don't think Abraham stopped loving Isaac, but what he did is love his God above all else. And I want that for you. I want that for our church. I want to push the limits of our faith, and I want to loosen our grip on everything God's given us, that it might be all his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. God, this is a hard teaching. It's hard to think about how everything I have is yours. It seems so unfair to see that something I earned in a paycheck or something that I was given in a relationship doesn't belong to me. Um, But God, we acknowledge the truth of your scripture that everything we have is yours. And so God, push the limits of our faith. Help us see the cost that comes with what you've given us. And let us be up for the task of giving you all back our worship because you are worth more than any of it. Lord, I pray your blessing over Eastside Community Church. Let us be a faithful church, willing and able to pursue you and obey you quickly. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.